Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. I think when we look back on our youth, we tend to genericize the power of imagination and not remember the details of how we actually played with toys. And my friends and I had been playing with Star Wars figures long enough that we had established a method of playing with action figures that was largely influenced by our diving into playing role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons. And we would adopt things from that gameplay into how we played G.I. Joe, which made things much more story-driven and cooperative in how we told the stories about the figures that we were playing with. How we played was pretty simple to begin with. We would bring our figures all together, and sometimes figures had to be marked if they were duplicates, but often you kind of knew your own figures based on little details or little imperfections with the figures. And then everyone would get to choose. Now you don't get to choose just whatever you want. There were certain figures that if they belonged to someone, say, I owned Destro, and I liked playing Destro, so nobody could pick Destro until later on when I was tired of Destro and wanted to play somebody else. So there were certain figures that were off-limits that you just sort of assumed were yours, but then everybody else picked whatever figures they wanted. Then we would spend about a half hour, sometimes a lot longer, building the world out, staging little scenes, putting them around in certain areas, this often involved setting up other toys or using things around. If we are inside, say, something like books could be a fort. Or if we are outside, we might dig pits, set up little forests, and basically stage what was going to happen before the action happened. Then when we all agreed that we were ready, and sometimes we were never ready. Sometimes the setting up was so much more fun than the playing that we never even got to that. But when we did agree that we were going to finally play, then it would play out sort of like a role-playing game where there would be interactions, a fight, and there was certainly this sort of unwritten rule about who was more powerful in any situation. And that often had to do with the popularity of the figure. Because in the end, what was going to happen is, say three or four of us were playing, the three or four that were left over were going to be the three or four favorite figures of the kids playing. So often you would have Destro versus Snake Eyes versus Storm Shadow versus, say, Stalker. I am surprised at how rarely disagreements would break out. Now, I'm not saying they didn't, but the good thing was that usually those arguments didn't happen until what would have been the end of the play session anyway. So say we couldn't figure out who was going to be more powerful, Storm Shadow versus Snake Eyes. It didn't really matter because pretty soon it would be dinner or lunch and we'd have to stop playing anyway. And then the next day we would repeat the whole process over again. Obviously the reason I'm talking with you about how to play G.I. Joe figures is I'm going to talk to you today about G.I. Joe figures. We're going to talk a little bit about the company that created the figures. We'll talk a little bit about the earlier line of action figures. And then we'll move into the 80s when the three and three quarter inch figures took the world by storm. 
Now, the subject of G.I. Joe is immense. So while I'm going to focus on the figures that came out, I'm not going to go much beyond the original lineup of figures that were released. We might get a little bit more than that, but after 1982, Hasbro would release many, many action figures. And while there'll be many quality action figures that would be released after the early 80s, that's not what we're going to focus on today. We have a lot of fun information ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. hard to talk about G.I. Joe without talking about the company that created these figures. And that company started in 1923 when three brothers, Herman, Hillel, and Henry Hassenfeld, founded Hassenfeld Brothers in Providence, Rhode Island. And they were a company that sold textile remnants. They would eventually broaden their offering, producing not only pencils, but moving on to things that kids could play with, including modeling clay, and toy medical kits. Those were so successful that by 1942, the Hassenfeld brothers were mostly a toy company. In 1943, there would be some changes. Hillel passed away, and Henry became CEO, and his son, Merrill, would become president. At this point, it became apparent that plastic was the wave of the future. So remember, plastics, wave of the future. And Hasbro jumped in with both feet. Now, what was their first big hit? What put the Hassenfeld brothers on the map was a little toy that we are still very familiar with today, Mr. Potato Head, which the company purchased from its creator, George Lerner, in 1952. It was so successful that they would start becoming a licensee for another major company, Disney, in 1954. In 1960, the torch was passed to the next generation of Hassenfelds when Merrill took over the company. At this point, they were expanding, and then something interesting happened. In 1963, they were approached to license a toy based on a television show called The Lieutenant. 
it seemed like a really good idea to do a toy based on military characters, but they didn't know how long the series was going to last. It's at this point that they would decide to make G.I. Joe figures, and we'll return to that in just a minute. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about the history of this very storied company first. By the late 60s, the company had been selling toys under the Hasbro trade name. I love these company names that are just part of something longer, like Hassenfeld Brothers become Hasbro. The Connecticut Leather Company becomes Coleco. I don't know why, but I find that very pleasing. In the 60s, it was all about diversification, especially as their G.I. Joe toy line, which had been running now for a decade, had started to lose popularity. There were two toys that were a real big disaster for the company, one of which is very fun, which was javelin darts, or what you would see as lawn darts. When you are throwing a weighted projectile with a sharp metal point into the air, bad things might happen, but still, despite that, these things were sold until 1988. The other toy, which is just amazing and I had not seen up until this point, was the Hypo Squirt, which was a hypodermic needle-shaped water gun, and the press had a field day with it, calling it the Junior Junkie Kit. That's not great press for a toy company. Also at this time, there was a big push into daycare, and there was a little show that you might have seen on television at the time called Romper Room, and Romper Room and Hasbro were tied together very closely, and Romper Room toys were selling really well at this point. Although, there were criticisms of Romper Room, the show, being tied so closely to a toy line, as if the show existed just to sell toys. We'll end our story of Hasbro in the early 80s, mostly because I find it very interesting the direction they took in the early 80s and late 70s. Every company seemed to want to get involved in electronics and toys and computers, but Hasbro instead focused on longer life cycle toys, basically hard plastic toys, things that lasted a while, things like Mr. Potato Head, which when the video game crash happened in 1983, allowed them to avoid all of the fallout from it. And I don't believe this was about foresight, that they saw that things were going to crumble or that this thing was a fad. It was mostly because they were just trying to focus on their core business. And it helped that they had a toy franchise sitting in the chamber waiting to be revived. That toy started its life way back in the 60s. So let's move back there and take a look at the birth of G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe, fighting man from head to toe, on the land, on the sea, in the air. G.I. Joe, attack! Row, row! G.I. Joe, big battle! Bam, bam! Terrific battle! Terrific equipment to have a battle with. When you get G.I. Joe and the authentic G.I. Joe equipment, you'll have the greatest realism, the greatest fun you ever had in playing soldier. Box after box of authentic uniforms and equipment so you can change your G.I. Joe soldier into a camouflage marine ready for battle. A Navy frogman with complete scuba suit and inflatable life raft. An Air Force pilot with high-altitude helmet and air vest. Get G.I. Joe and get G.I. Joe equipment so you can set up exciting battle action whenever you want. Remember, only G.I. Joe is G.I. Joe. That was the original G.I. Joe commercial from the early 60s. The original idea 
for what would become the G.I. Joe toy was developed in 1963 by an inventor named Stanley Weston, who worked in New York City. Weston would create a rudimentary prototype, which included the figure and basic marketing materials that showed that there was a lot of potential for a military doll, something that would be rechristened later as an action figure because they didn't want boys to have to play with dolls, so they coined this term action figure. He would show those materials to Donald Levine, who was a Hasbro executive at the time. Levine was instantly struck by the potential of these figures, and he actually told Levine that he will make a fortune with these. Weston would make a good amount of money when he licensed the concept to Hasbro for $100,000, which would be the equivalent of $856,000 today. While Stan Weston would create these toys and sell them, he would meet with other people who would give him feedback. For example, the idea of having the figure be fully articulated so that it could basically do action things was based on a conversation he had with the head of games at Ideal Toys, Larry Reiner. The product that you finally saw when Hasbro released G.I. Joe, which was a 12-inch tall articulated figure, was credited to Sam Spears, whose name appears on the patent, which if you want to look it up, it's patent 3,277,602, which is called Toy Figure Having Movable Joints. And it was granted on October 11th, 1966, which is years after G.I. Joe was already being sold. The graphics you saw on the packaging, things that would inform G.I. Joe for decades, was made by the art studio of Thresher and Petrucci, which was a company that had done mostly freelance work with Hasbro up to that point. Before they came up with the name G.I. Joe, they actually had names for their prototypes. The marine soldier was named Rocky, the sailor was named Skip, and the pilot was named Ace. When they did release the G.I. Joe figures, all four branches of the U.S. Armed Forces were represented. You had Action Sailor, Action Soldier, Action Pilot, and Action Marine. Hasbro knew that if G.I. Joe was successful, they would see people start to copy the idea immediately, and that did start happening. Other companies started selling things for G.I. Joe, like accessories and clothes, but to try to combat that, Hasbro would try to offer a range of accessories so that you had more you could buy from them. So why did this initial wave of G.I. Joe start to finally flail. So in the 60s, a big thing that was going on was the Vietnam War. And the U.S.'s involvement in it had stirred some anti-war sentiments. And so there was a big worry that the G.I. Joe toy line wasn't relevant anymore. Parents wouldn't buy it for their kids, and kids certainly wouldn't play with it. So by the late 60s, this initial wave of G.I. Joe was over, and it started to be replaced. And they began to market it as the adventures of G.I. Joe. And instead of having pilot or sailor or soldier, you instead had adventurer or astronaut or aquanaut. And all of those accessories I talked about earlier, well, those were recycled. Military sets were now given evocative names like Danger of the Depths and Secret Mission to Spy Island. 
A big change that would happen with this new 1970s version of G.I. Joe was when they had licensed the toys to a company in England called Palatoy, which is a much storied toy company on its own, they added a new element, which was the sort of lifelike hair, which was much more in line with larger dolls at the time. At the same time, there was also this wave of martial arts mania happening in pop culture. And so Hasbro introduced the Kung Fu grip to the G.I. Joe toy line, which was also something that had been created at first in the UK for their line of G.I. Joe, which I should mention they called Action Man. And that innovation meant that the hands were molded in a soft plastic, and this allowed the fingers to grip objects. Unfortunately, that plastic would break down quickly and cause the fingertips to break off, usually after just a few weeks. Another interesting twist would happen in the mid-70s when Hasbro tried to purchase the toy rights to the $6 million man. When that failed, they just took a G.I. Joe and created Mike Power Atomic Man, which was a huge success. I would find Mike Power Atomic Men at garage sales for years after this, and often he would be confused with the $6 million man action figure, which was also created. And around the same time in 1976, oddly at the time when America was at its biggest hype in terms of patriotism, separating the bicentennial, the G.I. Joe toy line ended in America. They would still use the original molds to create something called the Defenders, but G.I. Joe, as we knew it, was dead. But not for long, because in 1982... He'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. It's here, the G.I. Joe collection. Infantry troopers. Codename Grunt. Bazooka soldier. Codename Zap. Motor soldier. Codename Short Fuse. Laser rifle trooper. Codename Flash. Ranger. Codename Stalker. Communications officer. Codename Breaker. Machine gunner. Codename Rock and Roll. Counterintelligence. Codename Scarlet. Commando. Codename Snake Eyes. Each sold separately. G.I. Joe from Hasbro. That was the original commercial for the revived G.I. Joe figures, and we'll talk a little bit more about them later. But this G.I. Joe revival, which we'll call a real American hero, G.I. Joe, came about in the early 80s in a reaction to the success of the three and three quarter inch action figures that were created for Star Wars and, to a lesser extent, the Micronauts. And according to legend, the beginning of this toy line happened by chance when the president and CEO of Hasbro met the president of Marvel at a charity event and they were talking to each other about their businesses and how Hasbro wanted to bring G.I. Joe back and was looking for a new approach. At this point, the president of Marvel said, let me bring in this editor-in-chief of mine and we'll fix it for you. Now, prior to G.I. Joe's relaunch, Larry Hama, who was working at Marvel, was developing a new comic book called Fury Force, which he hoped would be an ongoing series at Marvel. The premise of that was that the son of the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., Nick Fury, which if you've seen any of the Marvel movies or read Marvel comics, you know who Nick Fury is, was assembling a team of commandos to battle Hydra, which is a neo-Nazi organization. They approached Hama about this new G.I. Joe project, 
And this Fury concept was adapted. And then the idea would be that the team would be called G.I. Joe and would consist of different soldiers working under the flag of G.I. Joe. Two great suggestions were brought up by Marvel that Hasbro was a little unsure about. First was they wanted to make villain toys, something that the heroes could fight. And Hasbro thought, well, that doesn't make much sense. Who's going to want to play with a villain toy? They were obviously not aware of how someone could have a very close relationship with their Destro figure. Marvel also suggested that they include female G.I. Joe characters in the toy line. Hasbro would be okay with both of these, although they also kind of said that they wanted the female characters to be included with a vehicle because they worried it wouldn't sell independently. Luckily, they would overcome that as well. The concept of G.I. Joe fighting a terrorist organization called Cobra is credited to Archie Goodwin, who was a former Marvel editor-in-chief. He also suggested Cobra Commander. It was a clever idea because it also meant that while G.I. Joe could be this combat organization, it didn't have to be just directly called a war toy, which was still seen as being undesirable. Besides the initial idea of Cobra, everything else story-wise in G.I. Joe was created by Larry Hama. It's very rare in this world to see something that exists that comes almost directly out of the mind of one person. And I'm not saying that every little detail was done by him. He had to take feedback very often from the toy company and the marketing people who were trying to sell toys. But it was Larry who had to take all of them and give them life to come up with what the story was behind them, to make them desirable. Now, remember what I told you about Romper Room, that there was a TV show called Romper Room, and then there was a line of toys called Romper Room. And those toys were successful largely based on what you would see on television. And anyone who owned a pair of romper stompers will tell you, yes, it was very fun to buy stuff that had the romper room name on them. What you doing? Hide now. Treehouse is a great hideout. Sunshine and adventure all around. You need up here? Yep. Imagine living in a Weebles treehouse. What do you do if someone comes? I hide inside the tree. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Weebles Treehouse comes with everything you see here. Weebles Treehouse from Romper Room. The same thing would happen with G.I. Joe, but more so. It would get a comic book and a television series. And the reason that this was a good investment was that advertising, direct advertising, was strict. And there were limits on how much advertisement could depict a toy in animation. Which is why when you see a lot of these early commercials, there's kids actually playing with the toys with little segments of animation. But if it was a comic book, a literary creation the depiction of animation in the advertisement was much freer. You could make the entire commercial a cartoon. And of course, if there's an animated series and you're advertising the animated series based on the toy, well then you would just show segments from that animated series. It was a brilliant move and basically locked in an ecosystem. G.I. Joe, when it hit my neighborhood, it was like a tidal wave. It appeared out of nowhere. I have some toy catalogs here. You look at 1981, there is not a hint that G.I. Joe is going to be around. And then in 82, quite a splash is made 
in the Sears catalog. It's a simple one page, but G.I. Joe is back to battle the Cobra Command right there at the top. We'll look a little bit more at this later, but it was a big deal. And it was so well thought out. This original toy line would run from 1982 to 1994. And there would be changes to the figures over time. Notably from the first series to the second series that put more articulation into the figures and a lot more detail. There would also be some changes that increase posability by the fourth series. And we'll return to some of these series a little later. But first, I want to play the second commercial that was ever made for G.I. Joe. In this one, you actually get to hear about some of the vehicles, and you get the mention of Cobra. Wherever there's trouble, G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe and Cobra the Enemy, each sold separately from... When you bought a G.I. Joe figure, or picked it up even to look at it, one of the first things you would note was that there was details on the back. There were file cards, which was profile information about the character. And you were encouraged to cut it out, and I did cut them all out, unfortunately. I wish I had saved my card backs. But the information you're given is so great. You get a picture, what team they're on. You get their serial number, their specialties, where they're from, their rank grade, a paragraph detailing them, a quote about them from a source, just lots of personal details. I can still remember Major Blood had a poem in his. That sticks with you, and that's because Larry Hama is brilliant. Those file cards are an outgrowth of his. He wrote every one of them, and according to Larry, I did the file cards from the very beginning. In fact, it was my idea to do the file cards. I never actually intended them to be printed on the backs of the packages. I just did them, much more detailed, for my own reference. So he was writing these very detailed stories, these dossiers, on the characters for himself. And when a representative from Hasbro saw that he had these dossiers, they thought, well, that will make the blister pack, the carded place where you got your figures, so much more attractive and buyable. This format would change very little until 1988 when they started to remove things like education and then in 1991 there would be a bigger change where they would remove the paragraphs and the quotes and would replace it with a short quote from the character about themselves and then there would be a paragraph that talked about their abilities. All the cards that would follow would follow this format. I preferred the earlier format. There were two changes I mentioned earlier, one from the original figures to the second run of them, and that was the swivel arm. The original G.I. Joes had stiff arms that just moved up and down. You couldn't swivel them at a joint. We had a 5 and 10 in my town that sold G.I. Joe figures, and when the swivel arm battle grip articulation showed up in 1983, I think collectively all of our heads exploded. How is this possible? Suddenly everything in G.I. Joe was different. It was so much more usable and playable. And it was such a different experience from what we were familiar with, which was Star Wars figures. Up until then, the G.I. Joe was similar. You could bend the arms at the elbow with G.I. Joe, which you couldn't do with those original Star Wars figures. But now you could swivel them right, left, 
Then in 85, they were given a ball joint at the neck, which allowed you to tilt the head instead of just rotating it. And then you can get all sorts of really interesting poses and moves. Unfortunately, while they would release older figures with the new joints for the arms, they wouldn't re-release them with this new neck articulation. So there were all these figures that you could have very cool neck poses and very dramatic poses with their head looking a certain way, but your older figures just wasn't happening. I will say this though, the more articulation you give these figures, the more things could loosen up. And so you'd have this loose-necked character and your character's head would just flop over constantly. It's the same thing with the arms. They just swivel wildly, especially if you played with your figures a lot, which my friends and I did. Now, they would have 11 original figures in the toy line. You heard some of them in a commercial earlier. And this comes directly from the 1982 catalog I'm going to read from. You had Infantry Trooper, codename Grunt, Laser Rifle Trooper, codename Flash, Flash was actually one of my first figures. Ranger, codenamed Stalker, very popular figure with my friends. Next up, Bazooka Soldier, codenamed Zap. Never understood why Bazooka Soldier would be called Zap. It's as if the Laser Trooper could also have been Zap. Maybe Boom would have been a better name for a Bazooka Soldier, but I wasn't making the choices. Counterintelligence, codenamed Scarlet, the only female character of the original G.I. Joes. Commando, codenamed Snake Eyes. Probably the most popular figure, for obvious reasons. Very mysterious. Very cool looking. He also had an Uzi. Communications officer, codename Breaker. Mortar soldier, codename Short Fuse. Machine gunner, codename Rock and Roll. And then you had two Cobras, Cobra officer and Cobra soldier. Both codename Enemy. There were also some vehicles that were created. You had the Jetpack or Jump, which gave you a twin rocket jetpack. You had the Rapid Fire Motorcycle, or RAM, so popular in my group of friends because it had a Gatling gun instead of a sidecar. Plus, you could just drive it on the edge of things. It was really cool and dramatic. The Attack Cannon, or FLAC, which was the first of the G.I. Joe Combat Series accessories that I had. I love in the catalog, it says, does not shoot, very important. They had the Jeep, which would be the thing that I saved up my money to get, which was called the Vamp. It's still somewhere today. It's in rough shape, though. The Heavy Artillery Laser, or HAL, and the Mobile Missile System, the MMS, again, does not fire. Finally, there was a motorized battle tank, the Mobat, which took batteries and came with a figure called Steeler. By moving the turret, you could control the direction it would roll. My friend had it, and boy, was that impressive. I mentioned Steeler. There were three other vehicle drivers, Grand Slam, Clutch, who came with the Jeep, and, of course, Hawk, who manned the mobile missile system. At the same time that you had these Cobra enemies, we didn't know who led Cobra but we would find out pretty quickly because at the time there was this offer that if you cut out the flag points from the card back that you got with all your figures and sent them in along with shipping and handling, you would get Cobra Commander mailed to you in six to eight weeks. I think mine took longer, but we were waiting for this character to come in. And when he did, he looked really cool. He had the silver mask, very menacing. Also, his gun could attach to his back which for some reason we thought was maybe the neatest thing ever, even though it's a very simple thing. I love this detail from his file card. 
Cobra Commander is hatred and evil personified, corrupt, a man without scruples, probably the most dangerous man alive. That's good stuff from Larry Hama. G.I. Joe was a big hit right away, and they would instantly start to open up the toy line. By the very next year, there were 20 action figures available, and those all now had the swivel arm battle grip. And they also started to develop mythology around Cobra, and that was tied directly to the ongoing comic book and the ongoing animated series, which helped to make sense of this ever-growing toy line. But those are things we'll talk about in our next podcasts. At around the same time that G.I. Joe came out, Remco released a line of figures and accessories around a very good DC comic called Sergeant Rock. And the really interesting thing about the Sergeant Rock figures is that they were really pretty good looking, but they also worked well enough with G.I. Joe. They were a bit more realistic looking. But I had a friend who bet on Sergeant Rock. He was thinking, this is the thing that's going to work. You G.I. Joe people are fools. Sergeant Rock is going to be the thing that everybody is playing with. You're wasting your money. And he would bring his Sergeant Rock to play with our G.I. Joe, and none of us ever wanted to pick any of the Sergeant Rock figures to play with. And unfortunately for him, the Sergeant Rock figures didn't catch on. But it was an interesting footnote, and I did spot them in the catalog from 1982 when I was looking it up. So let's take a look at the catalog itself. The Sergeant Rock Jeep had a real remote control to control it, which was really neat for only $20 at the time. And the thing I do remember, which I liked about Sergeant Rock, is that they had an action playset that I'm pretty sure we wrecked really quickly. But it did look cool. It had sandbags and stuff, which was much better than G.I. Joe at the time, which had a cardboard Cobra command headquarters. But beyond that, there wasn't anything else. I will say that one of the accessories that they do have in the toy catalog for G.I. Joe is the G.I. Joe tent set, which was a tent with G.I. Joe on the outside, and it had a camouflage mat. I don't think my friends and I had that, although my one friend did have a G.I. Joe sleeping bag, which he used for a long time. For $10.99, you could get that Cobra Command playset that I'm talking about, and it came with three figures. It came with Cobra Commander and a Cobra Officer and a Cobra Soldier. So that's a pretty good investment at the time. Hmm. I guess it was late enough that the mail-in order had been played out. The G.I. Joe toy line did really well for a couple of years. Even after the cartoon had run its course, the line continued to sell pretty well. But as the 80s drew to a close, they started to release more and more, I would say, interesting variations on G.I. Joe, but they weren't selling as well. And Hasbro scaled back on production and focused instead on the action figure lineup and slowed down on vehicles. They would also create special teams, hoping that something would catch on. Things like the Eco Warriors and the Star Brigade, and of course Ninja Force. One of the last exciting tie-ins, I think, was in 1993, when characters from the Street Fighter 2 video game became part of the G.I. Joe lineup, which was a fun thing that G.I. Joe had been doing for years, pulling in characters from other things, like football and professional wrestling. That Joe's surrounded by Cobras. Yeah, but that Joe's Sergeant Slaughter. He's joined the G.I. Joe team. So we're celebrating by giving away Sergeant Slaughter action figures, but you can't buy them in stores. You've got to earn them. 
Here's how. Collect five Sergeant Slaughter certificates or call the number on the certificate and Sergeant Slaughter will tell you how to get in on the action with only four certificates. There's a $1 handling charge. See details in specially marked packages. G.I. Joe. Nobody takes on Cobras better than Sergeant Slaughter. The G.I. Joe action figures are still well-remembered and very collectible today. There are many sites and full video lineups and podcasts dedicated to dissecting the details of this cultural touchstone. So if you're a big fan of the action figures as a collector or you just want to get involved in it now, just do a search online. It's easy to get lost doing so. Hopefully I was able to give you an idea of how the early parts of G.I. Joe developed and the initial wave that hit and hopefully in ensuing episodes i'll be able to connect the various pieces together to help reinforce the idea of why it was so important with the revival of so many other toy lines over the years and with the release of gi joe movies i keep expecting to see a fuller re-release of gi joe but unfortunately most of what i've seen is collector's releases or smaller things, not some major toy line that will find its footing amongst a new generation. It hasn't happened yet, but I hold out hope. G.I. Joe was colorful and fun and a defining moment of so many people's childhood, and I believe it could be again. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter. He's at peachypixel8. That's the word peachy, the word pixel, and the number eight. I now have a newsletter that follows along with some of the research that I do for shows and posts. It's called The Act of Discovery. If you're interested in subscribing, you can go to newsletter.retroist.com. I send those out weekly. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show via Patreon. If you would like to support the Retroist at Patreon, you can go to patreon.com retroist. If you join, you get access to the Retroist Discord, which is a great community. Really keeps you fired up for retro things. You also get member-supported episodes that we vote on and bonus material from episodes that I release. And I'd like to thank a bunch of people who are supporting the show. Jason Ho, Squared Stiff, Paul Steensland, Alan Bowers, Pappy Land, Dan Keck, Kenny Siegel, Jason Muir, Alan Cullen, Richard Thompson, Robert Pennybags, Brian Katzel, Rob O'Hara, thanks Flack, Anthony Scott, Ashley Thomas, Gary Heather, and Thomas Baldwin. They're all people who've joined Patreon, and I'm really happy to have you aboard. Thanks for supporting the show. You're all great people, and I really enjoy talking to many of you on Discord. As I said, I'm going to talk more about G.I. Joe in the very next episode. We're going to talk about the G.I. Joe comic. We'll talk more about Larry Hama, this amazing comic and its run, and I look forward to talking to you then. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. feeling low and woozy slap a fresh clip in your oozy assume the proper firing stance and make the suckers jump and dance
from the Attica Gazette. Such a poet. This has been a Retro production. Goodbye.